Miss the show, no worries. On point and on this podcast, masking mandates come to an end, and yet instead of celebrating the end of this draconian, apocalyptic masking, those obsessed with restrictions are demanding they stay. Well, hey, if people want to wear masks forever, they can. But why must we all continue to live in mask misery? The longer this war lasts, the more dangerous Vladimir Putin seems to become. He's bombing children's hospitals now, and a new fear from experts that Putin might use the same chemical weapons he used on Syrians. We're going to talk with one of Ukraine's parliamentarians who's now fighting for her country. She believes NATO has failed to live up to their promise back in 1994 of defending Ukraine after it agreed to give up nuclear weapons. High gas prices are driving up the cost of everything, and it's going to last a lot longer than experts expected. And now it's not even inflation we have to worry about or recession. They're talking about stagflation, which is something we haven't seen in decades. And we'll talk about the abduction of this Iranian woman who was hiding in Wasega, and her disappearance remains unsolved two months later. And there's very little urgency to find her. And yet a very long trail of evidence that shows this woman was in imminent danger. Everyone, including police, knew that she was in danger, and yet the system failed to protect her. We'll talk with her family's lawyer, who will discuss, you know, the many issues of this troubling case. But the question is, where is this woman? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. Because the, the trends look so good that we can anticipate, uh, uh, if the trends continue, removing uh, mask, mandatory masking uh, by the end of March. Oh yes, I'll take that. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, March 9th. And mark uh, March 21st on your calendar as we start the great unmasking. Can't come a moment too soon. I don't know how this can't be seen as good news. Unless you're, of course, one of those who want to hide from COVID forever. Those like uh, Peter Uni, who will never actually see a good time for any COVID restriction to be lifted, and who never really wanted to see the pandemic end. I'm not one of those people. Because the way I see this, and I'm sure a lot of you do, is, you know, we've done what was asked. COVID's never going away. we got to get on with life. We've got to get back to living as normally as we can. We've got to get kids living as normally they can because they've been living in apocalyptic fear for a, a lot of their childhood. And I say give them as much normal as we can. Not to mention, you know, I've always wondered, like, how is it that a snotty, soaking wet mask, which if you've got young kids, you know what I'm talking about, they always fall under their noses. I don't, I'm trying to figure out how it's helping. But there's just so much whining and fear-mongering by those who have weaponized this issue And to those people I say newsflash, you know, there's not going to be a perfect time to rid of these things. And no one's stopping any of you from wearing them. So if you want to wear one, go ahead. If you want to wear a hazmat suit, knock yourself out. If you want to live in a bubble, you can. Nothing's going to stop you from doing this, which was, you know, kind of what the premier was saying this morning. Right now, we're we're doing fairly well, but we're always going to be cautious. And anyone who wants to wear a mask, uh, they're, they're more than welcome to. Um, it's going to be up to the, the people. All right. Pretty easy. Wear a mask. And for those saying, well, it's all political. Well, well, hello. Show me a po- politician who's not political. Of course it's political. Everything in this pandemic has been political. But, you know, I say, like, if you want to wear a mask, wear one. If you're a teacher and you're nervous in the classroom, wear a mask. If you're elderly or you're immunocompromised, wear a mask. Uh, If you're worried about March break and all the germs around, wear a mask. 
Otherwise, it's time that we get back to normal after two years of doom that I think has been just as damaging as the actual virus. And uh, and interestingly, during his um, announcement this morning, Dr. Moore kind of slipped in that masks, well, they may be necessary when other respiratory illnesses are prevalent. And to that I say no. No, no, no. Mask mandates are for whatever we just went through, not for cold and flu season. That's never been a thing before, and it should not become a thing moving forward. Again, if people want to wear them, go ahead. Because risks will always be a thing, whether it's COVID, any other health issue. Uh, and we don't even actually have the data to know if masks do or don't help. So I think we've got to just get back to common sense and, and use the COVID tools we all have. I mean, we're literally one of the last jurisdictions to lift mandates. And whether it's done March 21st, June 1st, September, whenever, for some it will never be the right time. And to them I say, again, no one will take away your mask. You can wear it. But me, I will happily be building a bonfire, and my masks and everyone else's masks in the household will be used as fuel. And if I need to keep one aside to wear if it makes someone uncomfortable, okay, I'll keep one. But I think we can all just make decisions at this point of how to deal with this, right? I think people got addicted to restrictions in the last two years, but hopefully they'll come around. So we'll talk about that tonight because it is our days of freedom getting back to normal. I think it is the right time. But let's turn to the uh, situation in Ukraine, which, of course, is going to be a situation for some time. And we're going to be uh, talking with someone in uh, Kiev in just a few minutes. But uh, Mr. Trudeau continues his tour of Europe and the uh, Baltic states. And today he was in Germany. And look, I have not said a lot about Mr. Trudeau. I have not criticized his handling of this thing. I've said kind of clearly it's not in our best interest that he falters here. None of us. So, you know, do your job. But, you know, he's been on this four-day tour all over the place, all over Europe and the Baltic states. And now I notice that today, you know, Melanie Jolie's there, Christian Freeland's there, Anita Anand has been there. And, and I look, I get diplomacy on the ground. I get it. I get that politicians do this stuff, but, you know, it's starting to look like a big photo op tour. That, that, that just is what it is. You know, we haven't had any policy announcements, none. We get speeches, we see appearances, but what we have not gotten anything of are clear answers on things like defense spending, energy strategies, partnerships, this, that. Like, diplomacy has to have something. It's got to deliver something. And, and I have seen none of that. We just get kind of like, yes, we're committed to spending. That's not an announcement. That's not like, a, like not seeing it. So we, all we're getting are these endless photos of Trudeau and, and now these women posing for pictures. And I was reading one of the journalists who's traveling. They say in the last three days... Those traveling with Mr. Trudeau have only been allowed to ask seven questions in total. Seven questions in three days. So, you know, color me a bit skeptical if this kind of starts looking like Mr. Trudeau is trying to rehabilitate his disastrous trucking chapter. I mean, far be it for a uh, politician to take care, you know, advantage of a crisis, but I'm sure it's just me. Nonetheless, he did give a speech that I thought was uh, interesting. He said it today at the Munich Security Conference where he talked about the importance of democracy, noting that it's crucial for democracies to take stock of the uh, rising apathy, the cynicism, declining voter turnout, misinformation plaguing their citizens. And then he told the audience that we must do our part to protect democracy by listening to others. 
We all need to commit to more listening and less shouting. Diversity of ideas helps us learn from one another. Talking with people who think differently from us is how we challenge ourselves. And challenging ourselves is how we grow. Mm. Interesting. Interesting that the guy who uh, refused to meet with a couple of truckers, who called millions of Canadians a fringe minority with unacceptable views, who's a guy who called the unvaxxed racist, uh, misogynist Nazis, and who then abused emergency powers to stop protests and then turned private banks into weapons to punish protesters. That's the guy now on the world stage lecturing about listening to different views? I, I'm sorry, I got a chuckle out of that because he's in no position to be lecturing about the decline of democracy or how we should listen to others with different views given Trudeau has mastered, mastered divisive identity politics and name-calling that has very much fueled the cynicism and the division that he himself is referring to. And I'm not sure if you've noticed, um, he's getting panned by the European media. They've got no the, the shine is off over there. They're like, who is this guy? And they're like just openly mocking him. So it's interesting to see the, the dichotomy of uh, how he's treated by uh, the media here and, and the outside world. But uh, they ain't buying what he's selling. But I'll be very interested and I'll eat my words. I'd love, I'm, I'm just, I want one big policy announcement out of this thing. And then I'll know it's not a photo op. But right now, it's a photo op. We understand that we are face to face with Putin and his troops. So we have just to face it. And uh, we are ready for this. Uh, but I still, I still hope, you know, I, I was hoping more for NATO before. And now I'm hoping more for Russian people that they will maybe wake up and. Uh, uh, arrange some protests against this evil that is happening. Well, there is the fog of war, and then there's the clarity of the carnage of Vladimir Putin's inflicting on the Ukrainian people. I mean, he's not even trying to follow any rules of war. And, you know, so he's purposely targeting those trying to flee their homes that he's now destroying. And Russia's military has not been able to take the capital of Kiev, which it clearly was not expecting. But it's clear that if Russia can't take control of the capital, it will leave it and every other city across that country in a heap of rubble. And today the military targeted a children and maternity hospital. And Chernobyl has been now left with its electricity off. So there are concerns about its stability. And now Western officials have very serious concerns that Russia may be preparing to do to Ukraine what it did to Syria which is to unleash chemical weapons like sarin. And I think the guarantee that we can make right now is that Vladimir Putin is a monster. He is utter garbage. Inna Solson is a member of Ukrainian parliament, deputy head of the Golis party, that is an opposition party, but right now she is bearing arms and fighting for her country. I'm so glad you joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And of course, um, you are in the Kyiv region, but you and all your parliamentarian colleagues, I mean, you have uh, stopped your political duties. I mean, you are literally fighting for your lives. Give me an idea of, um, of what is going on right now on the ground. Is there still hope that, that this, you know, Russia can be beaten here? 
there is always hope, of course, uh, particularly given that the last two weeks of resistance did show that the Russian army is not that scary. It is actually rather disorganized. It is uh, very poorly motivated. It's poorly equipped, frankly speaking, apart from the artillery and the aviation where they definitely have superiority. But other than that, uh, Russian army is uh, not able to complete uh, the goals that were set, luckily. Uh, partially because of the disorganization and the mess in the Russian army, and partially also because of the, the highest level of resistance uh, on the Ukrainian side, both uh, on the Ukrainian army side and the Ukrainian people. So we do believe we can we do have a winning chance here. Uh, we did manage to stall their progress towards major Ukrainian mm -hmm. cities. Two weeks into the war, they are nowhere closer to Kyiv than they were 10 days ago, actually. They were actually pushed further from uh, my native city of Kharkiv, which is, I'm so happy to know, because they were just destroying it from uh, missile launches uh, on the ground uh, around the city, and now they can't do that. So they only bombarded from air, but that is much more complicated. And uh, they were not able to proceed any further on the south. Uh, though on the south, their march was was most uh, rapid. So, so they did to capture the, the biggest territories on the south, but now they cannot proceed further and they cannot capture the city of Mykolaiv, which is fighting so very bravely. I'm so proud of people over there and the leadership over there uh, that they, they cannot really proceed any further. So I do believe we have a fighting chance as long as we're able to cover the air from those terrible, terrible bombardments from aviation that we are seeing every day now. Yeah, it's interesting because the more resilient Ukrainians are, uh, the angrier Vladimir Putin seems to get. I mean, he is breaking every possible rule of war. He is not even pretending not to target uh, women and children and just kill people. He's also not uh, afraid to take out major infrastructures. I mean, the fact that they bombed a maternity and children's hospital, I think, speaks to just the depravity of this man. How concerned are you and your colleagues that um, they will bring in chemical weapons or, or, or how much further this will go? Uh we are sure that this can happen. Uh, that is the reality that is difficult to comprehend, but we have to accept that this can happen. We are doing everything in our power to make sure it doesn't. But uh, we, as you just said, and I fully agree with you, he is a monster. He has no humane feelings for, for, for the human suffering. He has been uh, targeting civilians. Actually, the Russian soldiers that were captured by the Russian army, they were saying that uh, they were given direct order to shoot out civilian population. And we know that they were shooting at uh, people trying to be evacuated from uh, war zones. Uh, from uh, They were setting landmines. Uh, the place where people are trying to get out of a siege city of Mariupol were gathering. They are that, that terrible, that, that much evil mm -hmm. they are. And they have actually already used the vacuum bomb in a mm -hmm. town of yep. Lirka in northeast uh, of Ukraine. Uh, so unless they are stopped, uh, they will try to use uh, uh, something worse. I'm sure of that. And that is why uh, we need that protection from air so that they cannot drop those bombs uh, on our heads uh, anytime soon. That is why this air issue is, is so very crucial for our survival right now. And I'll remind our listeners that you are also a mom um, and you sent your little boy to another country so that he's safe. And so not only are you yes. dealing with the stress and the heartbreak of not being able to be with your child, but you're also you know, picking up weapons, uh, which you know, you're now a soldier. Um, to, to the point that you say, though, I mean, the fighter jets, I mean, there was real hope and almost real excitement that Poland was going to be able to facilitate uh, fighter jets to maybe give Ukraine the chance to get its own airspace. That deal has now fallen apart. How much of a blow was that to, to the morale on the ground? And is there any hope, um, uh, you know, 
is it kind of setting into to President Zelensky and, and yourselves that, that that you are on your own to fight this battle? Or do you have any hope that NATO will um, become part of this? I I am. Uh, so, so it's like that. I'm representing the political party that was most in favor of closer connections with Europe. Uh, I think the majority of uh, our members of parliament in Holos party, we were studying abroad. I did my master's in Sweden. I lived in the United States uh, as a Fulbright scholar. Uh, I did uh, multiple uh, short-term visits to the United Kingdom. We are all so much uh, fans of the idea of Ukraine getting closer to the West, uh, to Europe. Uh, and now we do feel betrayed, most betrayed in, in our expectations, because now we are seeing that the West is not willing to live according to, to the values that uh, it is supposed to be protecting. Uh, we do feel betrayed also because we all know that in 1994, Ukraine gave up our nuclear yeah. weapon potential in exchange for security assurances from the United Kingdom and the United States. So we were truly hoping that uh, that would mean something, that uh, you know, once uh, uh, civilized democratic countries uh, promise something they will really try to deliver. That is why uh, this, this fighter jets issue with Poland and the United States, we were really excited uh, 24 hours ago when it felt like it's going through, it's going to happen. And then uh, some strange things started happening. We still have hope that uh, a solution might be found because basically every day of delay is bringing us new and new deaths. Uh, right now, the, the terrible data is uh, we are losing every uh, every day, we are losing five children's lives. Yeah. And that is just on the data we know. We just uh, today in the afternoon, we learned that um, in the city of Mariupol, they, they finally got, uh, uh, you know, uh, some connection and they were able to communicate. And the number in Mariupol is just terrifying. Over 1000 people dead in Mariupol yeah. during this, this blockade, including children. So, so the price uh, on the, this, uh, you know, delays is just too high. And that's what we hope the West will understand is that please help us with those fighter jets. We are fighting not just for ourselves. We are fighting against this monster who is a threat to the whole humanity. Uh, and uh, we feel abandoned that we have to do this on our own. I don't blame you. Um, it's so heartbreaking uh, with you in spirit, of course, uh, but but that's not what you need. You need actual weapons, you need protection, you need defense, and uh, you need safety. Yeah. But uh, you very much are in the hearts and minds of people around the world. And, and so at least I hope you can tuck that away because uh, I know you're in an impossible situation. Very generous with your time uh, with me, Ina. I know you're under a lot of pressure right now, kind of tucked away in safety, but um, we'll talk again. We'll make sure your story gets out and we uh, stand with Ukraine and, and, and your people. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for continuing to cover this. No question about it. That is Ina Sovzin, who uh, her job was a politician in the opposition, and now she is fighting for her country's life and uh, will continue making sure that her story and the others get out. All right, welcome back here on this Wednesday. So while Ukraine is obviously paying the ultimate price, the suffering of Russia's ruthless carnage, we're also going to pay for this war and we're already paying at the pump. You see it, the kinds of fuel prices and shortage threats that we haven't seen since back in the 70s. And these prices are not coming down anytime soon. We are going to expect to wake up to $2 gas possibly by tomorrow. And it, of course, has a big trickle-down effect. It's going to drive up costs on heating bills, food bills. Literally everything we buy is going to be more expensive. And inflation, which was already surging, is now expected to kind of explode. And a number of economists are warning that inflation is not even going to be the big problem because now we're entering into the stagnation phase, something we have not seen 
since, yeah, the 70s. Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business. He would remember those times. Um, when was the last time we had this kind of threat? Is it the 70s? Alex, you're absolutely correct, and I remember it vividly. I came of age as a young man in the 70s. I joined the workforce in 71, and the, throughout the 70s, the inflation went up year after year. Government deficits went up year. That's when they started, and they went up year after year. And then finally, in the late 70s, the, the, uh, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve and the States, but I'm really, let's talk about Canada, were playing, um, uh, let's call it catch-up. They weren't getting ahead of the issue. You know, they said, okay, inflation's up two, we'll raise the interest rates up at one point. And um, in other words, they were always playing, uh, they were always behind the curve. And they didn't catch up and address it, uh, I think, partly because of my own view, because of political pressure. They didn't want uh, the, uh, the, the bank to do that. And then what happened, it wasn't Canada that belled the cat, that addressed the problem, grabbed the bull by the horns, you know, all these cliches. It was uh, Volcker. Uh, Mr. Volcker at the Federal Reserve, and he was one tough person, I'll tell you, and he said, I'm going to raise interest rates until he says, I squeeze inflation out of the everybody. Like, he was just a real uh, tough guy. And he drove interest rates to 20, to zero, no decimal point in between, yeah. 20, 20. And he engineered, <laughs> I'm laughing now because it's long gone, he engineered the worst deepest recession since the depression of the 1930s but it worked it worked mm. he put the genie called inflation and stagflation back into the bottle and yes you are right we had stagflation also the 70s stagflation for those who don't really doesn't make sense it's where you're having inflation without any real growth all the growth was fake, I call it fake growth, because, you know, the, for example, the GDP would go up 8% and the inflation would go up 8%. Well, that means you grow zero, because right. eight of it is inflation. And so that's what we had. We didn't have real growth throughout the 70s. We, had, we were stagnating, and we had inflation, so then it, called, it was called stagflation. Okay, so we were, we've always, but we've been talking for months now about, you know, we're, we're not into yet the pandemic recovery. We're dealing with high inflation. So things were all, cost of living was already an issue before this thing yeah. erupted and caught everyone off guard. And so what are we looking at as far as, as the scenario now? Because there is a world of hurt, um, you know, and, and if it lasts as long as some are predicting it will, I mean, this is going to require some intervention by the government to do something. And I don't know what they can do other than, I don't know, lower taxes. Alex, you're, you're summarizing it very, very nicely, um, and let's acknowledge what you already did, and I will too, that the, uh, the people of Ukraine are suffering uh, atrocities. Uh, Putin's uh, thugs are, are murdering children, uh, killing, uh, shooting uh, bombs into uh, where children stay, daycare centers, and into hospitals. These are war crimes of, a, of unbelievable uh, proportion. And, uh, but uh, they, are, they are really, really, uh, uh, just uh, the, the suffering there is unbelievable. Um, we are going to not obviously experience that kind of suffering and deprivation, but we are going to experience a lot of pain. Let, let there be no mistake about it. And you accurately uh, summarized it with the, uh, with the energy. We are... We North America now, when I say we, I'm not talking the royal we, we North America, Canada and the U.S., are relatively insulated on natural gas because I, it's worth saying this over and over. People think they both go up and down almost in, in sync. Um, natural gas is not a, a, a world price. 
there's a price in North America called the Henry Hub price, and I'm, I'm sorry for getting the weeds, but there's a little ta- tiny little podunk town in Oklahoma called Henry, the town of Henry, mm. where a whole bunch of pipelines converge, gas pipelines, and that's where they settle the price. Now, of course, governments add taxes on, but the Ontario price that I'm paying or you're paying uh, is the Henry Hub price plus distribution and tax, taxes added on. So there's one price. But let's go back to oil. Oil is a global price. And oil and natural gas, for that matter, are very, I call them very unusual products. They're not like buying a T-shirt. You know, you don't like the T-shirt, you know, I won't buy one today. Oil and gas, natural gas and gasoline are truly existential to our existence. Agriculture is a huge user of energy to produce the food that we eat that's in the grocery stores. So when that goes up, it's going to drive up the price of food. And we can't, food is not discretionary. You can't say, gee whiz, I don't like the prices. I think I'll just not yeah. buy any food for the next six months. So this is going to hit us. It's going to hit us at the point. And plus, we have to factor in, Ian, though. I mean, you, Ukraine and Russia are huge exporters of wheat. And so there's an opportunity yeah. for farmers here in Canada to, to fulfill that need. But again, there's going to be a hit yeah. and a shortage in the supply chains. But it's all True. creating the volatility. So do you see, given your experience back in the 70s, and I remember my parents kind of crying over the 19% interest rates that they oh, yeah. paid on their home. Are we going back to that kind of territory uh, where we're seeing 10, 12, 13 percent? Like, how is the Bank of Canada going to deal with this? Because Mr. Trudeau has been asked a couple of times, like, what are you going to yeah. do? Like, he, he's got a carbon yeah. tax coming in April yeah. 1st. There are people like looking at prices of gas saying, what am I going to do here? It's not like you can just stop driving your car because yeah. a lot of people use those for their job. I think he's on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, I know it's cliche, but I really do think he is. I'll explain why. Uh, the pressure is only going to get more and more severe on on Mr. Trudeau and the finance minister before the budget, which is coming up in April, to, quote, do something. And it's not good right. enough to talk about uh, the global world climate crisis. He's got to do something. Mm-hmm. So, And the Bank of Canada, you can bet, is advising him, because the Bank of Canada governor meets, I think it's weekly or it's very frequently, with the Minister of Finance to debrief. And I'm certain he's saying, look, if, you, if, if this keeps on going, I've got to put interest rates up a lot higher. So they're going to be between the rock and the hard place. Do they tacitly agree to the Bank of Canada increase steadily increasing interest rates, like you just said, or through fiscal side, fiscal policy, do they announce a temporary suspension of the carbon mm-hmm. tax or a rollback temporary? They could say for six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever, until the budget to alleviate the pressures on ordinary Canadians. I think that pressure is only going to get worse, but I'm, I am answering mm-hmm. your question. What can they do in the short run? In the short run, gasoline is essential to all of us. We're a car culture because we're, we're a huge country. We need our cars to get to work, take the kids to the wherever, go to the grocery store. And so I think there's going to be more and more pressure on them to do something. And get, let me get this number out quick, Alex. This is from Natural Resources mm-hmm. Canada. Pump, the price at the pump, 42%. Is federal and provincial yeah. taxes. That's I know. almost one half. So if you're paying two dollars, <laughs> that means that almost a dollar is going in taxes. Notice I said plural: carbon tax, yeah. retail sales tax, excise tax, HST tax. And so there, these two governments, the federal and the provincial, are complicit in in keeping those prices at such an elevated level. Yeah.
Well, uh, Premier Ford says he can't lower them because the Fed's uh, and their carbon tax, and they're all looking at each other. But bottom line, as you know, the everyday person does not care. This is going to have to be addressed uh, with all the other needs. And, and you were already concerned before. So quickly before I let you go, Ian, you were worried before this whole thing erupted. What's your greatest concern now? That it's, it, it is going to become embedded. I mean, the war, the horrible, savage war in Ukraine is going to come to an end, and I don't mean in five or ten years. Uh, I think that the economy is in free fall in Russia as we speak very quickly. Rubles collapsing, inflation is going through the roof, GDP yeah. is collapsing, foreign capital is pulling out. There's this stampede for the exits. They're going into a massive recession, if not a depression. And Putin is either going to be overthrown or he's going to be looking, as I think he is, for an exit, and he's already proposed throwing out a peace plan, and I think you could see some kind of a peace plan where they carve off the eastern end and allow him to save face to exit. If that happens, oil prices are going to come back down quite quickly. I'm not saying they're going to come Mm. back down to $80, but they'll come back down a lot more quickly. That'll take pressure off the government, but the inflation, which is what you were asking me, I think it's going to remain embedded at an elevated level five, six percent, which means that we are going to, over the next two, three years, see more and more uh, increases in the uh, central bank rate in Canada. Boy, oh boy, what a bumpy, bumpy ride we are in for, uh, and we're already in for a bumpy ride. Nonetheless, Ian, we will talk again, no doubt. I know you're very busy these days, so I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. I really appreciate speaking with you, Alex. Thank you. That is Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business. So there you go. He was worried before, and uh, everyone's going to have to buckle up and just hope for the best, I guess. Great to have you here on this Wednesday. So where is Elnaz Hajtamari? I mean, where is the urgency to get this woman home safely? And I mean, is she even alive? This is a woman who's been missing since January 12th, uh, forcefully abducted from a home she was staying at in Wasega, where she was said to be hiding for her safety after being beaten at the hands of two masked men who police say attacked her in a parking garage at a Richmond Hill condo back in December on the 21st. And before that, this woman had found a couple of tracking devices on her car. And before that, she was allegedly assaulted by an ex-boyfriend who police say hit her so violently with a frying pan in that same parking garage that she needed 40 stitches on her head. It's pretty clear that this was a woman in imminent danger. It's also clear that despite, you know, the police knowing she was in danger, that the system failed to protect her. And since her abduction by these three armed masked men... There's been next to no urgency to find her, and her family very much believes this woman's alive and in danger. Devin Baines is a lawyer who has been hired by the family um, to try and get answers. Good to have you, Devin. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be here. Am I am I wrong when I say that there's a lack of urgency? I mean, the fact that the family has had to hire a lawyer, and I understand that they're, you know, maybe not in this country, but where is the urgency on this case? Well, there's a, a feeling of a lack of urgency, uh, without a doubt. Uh, part of that, of course, is generated by just the events that uh, led to Elnaz's abduction, uh, the inability of the uh, the people that she turned to, the authorities that, the, that she turned to, to keep her from being abducted, uh, but mm-hmm. also because there's uh, a, a be, been a, uh, a closed-lip uh, approach uh, to all of this by uh, all of the authorities, uh, very much unlike uh, some of the celebrated uh, 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 acts of violence that uh, are known uh, in the world against uh, against women who have been uh, badly in need of protection. And mm-hmm. 
and uh, as a result, uh, uh, there is a feeling that uh, that there isn't that urgency and uh, public uh, attention that you would think that a case is shocking, as shocking as this would generate. Well, I mean, look, she's in a small town. Uh, it's not very often that you hear of three masked men armed uh, dragging someone out of the house. I mean, the neighbors were said to be quite terrified. It made a big scene. And so you would think just based on that, um, you know, that they would be urgently trying to figure out who targeted this woman and, and the fact that they went to such um, means to get this woman. But, you know, putting that aside, you only need look back to her history, which we've only learned about kind of in bits and pieces as it's come out, that she was in danger. And the police knew she was in danger, which is my understanding that she was told, you know, go out of town, stay somewhere where it will be safe. And the woman still wasn't safe. And so was no one watching her? Did she have anybody in a system anywhere uh, that was tracking her or keeping an eye on her? I don't know what safety plan was in place for uh, Elnaz. What we do know is that the abduction appears to have occurred without a hitch, really, without uh, mm. any uh, anything impeding the abductors in any way. And that indicates, obviously, that um, there wasn't close uh, watch being kept of Elnaz. Uh, that makes that really makes that obvious. So um, I can't say what uh, was in place uh, with respect to her protection. That's something that only the police would know. Uh, I just know that uh, it didn't work. And does does her family, um, do they believe she's alive? They absolutely believe that she's alive. We absolutely believe that she's alive. We're fragile creatures. It's mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, tragically, not that difficult to take our lives if that's the intention of people who have uh, the mind to do so. But in this case, we know that there was an organized abduction that Elna mm-hmm. was very much alive when she left that house and that uh, there seemed to be uh, no intention to keep her uh, in any other way by the abductors. Otherwise, why go to the trouble? There's mm-hmm. absolutely no evidence that uh, Elnaz isn't alive. Uh, we just need to find her. So what do you know? I mean, what have you been able to find out? The police have been pretty tight-lipped about this. Normally when there is some kind of an abduction, you get amber alerts, you get kind of an urgency. There was never that kind of urgency with this particular case. We only learned about it, you know, hours and hours after the fact. Um, so that that was kind of one red flag as to how the case was being treated. But have there been any demands made uh, of the family? Have there been any indications um, or communications between her abductors, her or anybody on this case? Well, before I answer that question directly, I'd like to back up a little bit, if I may. If -hmm. you compare Elnaz's situation to, say, the uh, the comparable, uh, comparably serious uh, events of violence against uh, women in other uh, jurisdictions, uh, such as uh, the events surrounding Gabby Petito, or for that Mm -hmm. matter, Sarah Everard in the United United Kingdom, uh, we see a galvanization through uh, uh, throughout. The society, uh, in order to do everything possible to assist uh, with the situation, no matter what the cra- tragic outcomes were with respect to those uh, two other cases. So the question, of course, must arise, why is it that it's so different uh, for Elnaz? We know that Elnaz was a woman uh, who was a visible minority. We know mm-hmm. that she was uh, an immigrant. Uh, to this country. Does this factor into the lack of uh, momentum that existed in those other cases? I don't know. 
We know that there have been no uh, perpetual police announcements, no uh, presentations in, uh, uh, before the public or pleas for help uh, in, uh, in, in coming together with respect to this investigation. I, uh, I, don't, I, I, I can't put my finger on what it is that, uh, that keeps the same uh, urgency, as you put it, to be brought to this case. But, uh, but uh, Elnaz is out there. Uh, she's, uh, she badly needs to be found, and there is a great urgency that that be done. It's the 56th day now that Elnaz yeah. has been missing. Yeah, it's just very strange that, to your point, uh, the police have not put out any more information. The only way we're getting information is really if we kind of pester and bug and push for it, which in an abduction or a missing person's case really shouldn't be the case. Um, you know, and it's hard to think that there are more serious cases that the Wasaga police might be dealing with. Having said that, um, you know, what is her family? I mean, how are you going to get the answers as to where the investigation uh, stands at this point? I mean, are the police even telling you anything? Have they communicated at all with her family and updated with anything? Hey, look, here's the situation that we face, and uh, and and I, I, I suppose this isn't that hard to understand. The police have an investigation going. The investigation is being done by the OPP, and it's being managed by very, very capable people. We know that from their history and, and, and their experience. What exactly that investigation entails, however, is unknown. We understand why it is that there are investigative reasons for keeping mm-hmm. certain information away from the public, away from uh, the general public. Uh, we can think of many, many reasons for that. What, what is, is not so easy to understand is that presence, that constant presence out there right. by uh, pl- the police and the police authorities to speak of uh, the urgency of the situation. And uh, that includes, of course, at least equivalent things to the kind of alerts that you're talking about. If uh, I'm sure that if you were to go out uh, to the street and the general population of Ontario, Ontario or Canada, very few people would know about Elnaz's situation. Whereas these other uh, uh, highly wronged, vulnerable women who are known uh, internationally, their names will spring to mind immediately. So there is a there is a problem out there with respect to communication, and again, the galvanization of the public, which is even more important in Elnaz's case because Elnaz is out there, because we right. know that there are people out there that know where she is, and we know that there's more than one person who's been involved in the violence against her. And when there's more than one person involved and those people are out there, there is always a, an opportunity for members of the public to assist in finding uh, the missing person. So we, yeah. we, 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 we do see... Uh, just as you say, this obvious lack of urgency that uh, that is before us. Does that mean that the police themselves aren't feeling urgency? We're not saying that at all. We're saying that whatever the resources are that are that need to be pulled together in order to get uh, the the public push, uh, that is uh, is obviously not there. Yeah. Well, the only way people are going to know she's missing or in danger is if they hear about her or see her face and hear the pleas. But uh, lots of questions. Is she being trafficked? Is she being abused? Is she being kept away? Is she even being allowed out? Uh, There's just a lot of unknowns with this case. But uh, nonetheless, we'll continue talking about it, keeping it in the spotlight. But I do appreciate you uh, joining us to uh, represent the family. Thank you very much.
That is Devin Baines, who has been hired by Elnaz uh, Hajj Tamari's, uh, Tamiri's family. And again, uh, they may have very logical and uh, valid reasons not to reveal investigative um, issues in these cases. However, uh, to hear nothing in this amount of time is very unusual. We'll keep covering it. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live. We'd love to have you Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.